0: Welcome to Unfighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today we will be talking to Michael Reed, referee and judge for IFMA as part of our series on IFMA, the International Federation Muay Thai Association. The association's recently had the world championship adults in Bangkok last month over a hundred countries participated there were about 1500 bouts the US did pretty well six medals if you'd like to hear more about that you can listen to my interview with Desiree Brandt and also Michael Chase Corley a little bit of news before we go into the interview. I launched my Patreon a few months ago. I've decided to switch things up and make everything free and public. Um, we're going to try that out for a little while and see what happens. Um, if you'd like to reach me, you can follow me on Instagram, MattLukasBKK. I run a what I think is a really great profile series on different people in the business, uh, fighters, trainers, promoters, Um, All sorts of people. It's a really great way to get a glimpse on the inside. You can also email me at a.matt.lucas at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to all the people that have supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews, sending me comments, and, of course, subscribing to the Patreon. Uh, A few notes as well, Um, Nakmoy Legends has given me a code, so if you're interested in a discount for some of their awesome products, they mainly do t-shirts and apparel that supports old school golden era fighters. Uh, You can get 15% off your order if you type in On Fighting in the discount code. Uh, also going to plug my book, I wrote The Boxer Soliloquy. It was published back in 2014, but still remains a pretty strong read. Um, it's a series of interconnected Muay Thai short stories. You can pick up your copy off of Amazon and, and or read it as an ebook. So pretty easy to get through. So a little background on Michael Reed, he began Muay Thai in Toronto with crew Jennifer Atlantia in 2009. He fought f- just a little bit from about 2013 to 2014. He had a career in accounting and started doing admin work for the sport in 2015, 14, And then in 2015, he began Muay Thai Ontario, which now has two employees. He has a promotion, she fights that he's thrown a couple times. I believe Janet Todd was on it, Jackie Boontan as well. He's refereed for several years, both locally and internationally. Uh, in our conversation, we talk about the development of Muay Thai in Canada, going out to IFMA, judging in Sweden in order to bring back... Uh, to Canada, some structure and information. We talk about IFMA scoring, how preliminary bouts might be stopped quicker, um, the being outclassed, which happens both in IFMA and in fights out here and then what judges do about it and the possibility of getting IFMA and Muay Thai into the Olympics. So this is a huge topic right now in the community. Um, Definitely stay tuned. And without further ado, the interview with Michael Reed. Thank you so much, Michael Reed, for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure to meet you here in Bangkok over in Anu. Can you give me a brief history of Canadian Muay Thai? I know a lot of my listeners aren't that familiar with the good country up north.
1: Canadian Muay Thai was established in, from from my understanding, established in kind of two uh, major areas, one being Calgary, Alberta at West, and the other being uh, around Toronto, Ontario, uh, more in central Canada. Um, so with that, in Toronto, Ontario, where I'm from, um, John Suchart Yodkarapapre is a, uh, a Thai master who had come over to Canada. In I want to say about 1985, um, and started teaching Muay Thai while working in Thai restaurants. So, in the you know the, the basement of a restaurant or in the back kitchen area, he would he would do private lessons in Muay Thai while um, making making a living cooking. You know that's that's 30 years ago. He basically started teaching Muay Thai the year the year I was born in Canada. But he himself originally came from northern uh, northern Thailand, just a little bit, I believe, northwest of Chiang Mai in the Mae Hong Song area. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, and, and though I have a little bit less knowledge about Alberta, um, around the same time, uh, a John Mike Miles was building his building his school, building his uh, career as a, a professional kickboxer, and then professional Muay Thai fighter, and coach, and so on, through the 70s and 80s, and, and so on. So Mike Miles started out in the full contact kickboxing, and then transitioned over to Muay Thai, and then transitioned over to, you know, K1, and was really, in all respects, a savant in the sport. He, he definitely backed up his
0: his teaching with like in ring presence he
1: yeah he was he was a legitimate champion he uh, he was able to back everything up you know physically because he'd done it himself mm-hmm. so those two bastions of, of Canadian Muay Thai kind of built up around the same time and then as well of course there were schools that came up in in British Columbia and further west Winnipeg in Manitoba started to build up itself as well and then Quebec and then Eastern, uh, Eastern Canada in the Maritimes. But when we talk about like the largest density, of course it's gonna be around population centers. So Toronto is the most populous city in Canada and uh, that is where a majority of the Muay Thai is happening at this point in time, but also just because of how some regulations and
0: stuff have mm-hmm. shaped up. Makes sense. And around 2015, you started doing judging. How did you get into that and what are you doing with refereeing and judging these days
1: so in 2015 i was judging event judging refereeing events locally in ontario so throughout the province we'd travel to shows help put them on and bring in the officials for that in 2016 i made the trip out to Jan chopping sweden as canada's first international official this was something that i took on myself personally not that i even expected to get a shot at judging and refereeing at the world championship, because this was this was you know the, the pinnacle of the sport in an amateur basis. But uh, it was something that I wanted to do to be able to learn what was happening elsewhere in the world for international Muay Thai. Really have an opportunity to uh, immerse myself in the rule set and be able to pick the brains of other international technical officials that have been doing this for you know, 20-plus years to be able to connect with the representatives of the International Federation of, of, at the time, Muay Thai Amateur, now Muay Thai Mm -hmm. Associations. And as well as meet with, you know, Thais and and people that had possibly even, like, written the rule set so that we could, or I could, bring back a better understanding of everything to Canada. Mm Because Canada was, is, still kind of is, a baby when it comes to, Muay Thai, amateur Muay Thai development in a structured sense.
0: And when you were originally judging and refereeing on a local basis, what was your criteria? What sort of education process did you have to go through?
1: So I I trained underneath uh, crew Brian Edwards. Brian Edwards is one of Ontario's best uh, judges and referees. He had he had come to Thailand with a Junsu chart, I want to say in 2010 or 2011, and had taken a, I believe it was IFMA. Otherwise, if it wasn't IFMA, then it was like Rangsit Stadium or something mm-hmm. like that. Judge and referee course. So he did like a 10-day intensive Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he had brought that knowledge back to Canada. So when um, I first got involved in judging and refereeing, it was as a result of my work with the Muay Thai Association in Ontario. And it just kind of came out of necessity, mm-hmm. really. We needed more judges and referees. I wanted to help out where we wherever I could. And I ended up finding a passion for it. And that was what got me in, involved and desiring to improve my like my knowledge my abilities to really give
0: it a hundred percent since sweden you've mainly been involved in international bouts ifma stuff what is the criteria for ifma scoring can you just give a basic rundown of it
1: (laughs) yeah for sure so ifma scoring is fairly straightforward and a part of that is to help improve the international appeal and understanding uh, of the sport but essentially at its core it's you take a legal strike, a punch, a kick, a knee, an elbow, uh, against a legal target, which is basically anything but the groin. It has to be applied with force and intent and not be effectively blocked. And if you meet all of that criteria, you basically say that, okay, that strike was worth one score or one Mm -hmm. point. So there's no hierarchy of Of strikes, there's no, you know, knees and elbows are worth more than kicks are worth more than punches. It is every strike, as long as it meets that minimum basic criteria, legal strike, legal target applied with force and intent and unblocked, every strike is valued the same. And that keeps the scoring a little bit more um, simple. I, I suppose rather than what you know, stadium Muay Thai scoring can mm-hmm. get into with lots of cultural nuances and va- and value on techniques based on what that particular stadium wants to see. But it also keeps it very fast paced. So uh, as, as you're familiar, IFMA is three rounds of, of competition, and because every technique is weighted the same, that means that you know a combination of punches. If three of those punches land, you can't make up for that strike with just one One kick kick. yeah so it does create a, a faster pace of of action that we tend to see at the ifma championship
0: how do you feel like IFMA athletes have responded to it in terms of the style like do you see like a definitive style with the way scoring works and the way countries have responded to it versus the stadium scoring or even max muay thai i've talked about this before but and you alluded to it, there's even differences within the stadiums.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, I know um, Lumpini Stadium favors a more forward and aggressive style, where Rajendamnir favors a more technical and evasive style. When it comes to IFMA, you can definitely see graduation or movement towards similar principles, but specifically or like stylistically, not so much, because we still see the ties come in. And play a very similar game to what they play in professional uh, Muay Thai, and they're very, very successful with it. All it all it means is it just means that you can't let techniques scored against you go in the same way that you could in in professional. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if two punches land, you have to return. You can't smile when you get hit in the forehead just because <laughs> you held your head strong and it, it looked like it didn't phase you. In the same way that you know you can't just eat a low kick but keep your leg uh, solid and again you know, smile through it and then the, judge, the judges will ignore it. Instead, no, okay that low kick counted and you, you have to return. So the way that people adapt to that scoring system, there's still a lot of flexibility is that people can still go very moikau and control in the clinch and nullify the opponent's weapons and them being able to to strike back. People can get very evasive as well to prevent those scores from even happening against them. Or people can go, you know, full-on aggression, just racking up points and points and points. It really depends on what the athlete is best suited to and what the trainer is able to, to get out of them. But the main thing is, is that because much more is counted When a strike lands, the exchanges have to be a little bit more rapid-paced. You don't get to have someone, you know, push-kick you away and you adjust your shorts as we, like, slowly walk back uh, forward to each other. It's, nope, you have to take that point back.
0: Mm -hmm. You've done both judging and refereeing. Can you sort of explain some of the differences between the two? Obviously, one person is in the ring, one person is standing outside, but I feel like there's... Just logistical differences or nuances in both occupations. For sure. So, refereeing in amateur sport is much
1: more similar to refereeing in the the professional sport. There are um, a few... Key key differences. The one is that we are much more concerned about the safety of the athletes <laughs> in in amateur, um, but also in amateur and in a tournament like this, um, we want to ensure that athletes are able to compete across the seven, eight, nine, ten days that they're they're scheduled to step into the ring. So, so what does so, that mean? So, when we look at Like when it comes to refereeing, when we look at like a preliminary bout or quarterfinals or like, you know, as you're building up towards the finals, the preliminary bouts will be stopped a lot quicker when we're seeing vast differences in people's abilities and they just straight up call it an outclassing the referee stops the contest due to an outclassing one athlete is clearly of a much greater skill level than the other if this were to continue it would just end badly (laughs) you would have you know a knockout a cut uh something something broken or 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 so on so um the referees are there to take care of the competitors but there's also a side to that you know quick end to about in that by it ending earlier, then the winning athlete has sustained less damage. damage, yeah. And they're able to then compete the next day and then compete the next day and so on. There's no point in letting them bang up their shins or bang up their foot yeah. through repeated comp- uh, competition when we know it's going to end in a certain decision anyways.
0: And so without classings, how do a lot of the boxers respond to that? Because it is something that happens out here regularly, yeah. you know, any promotion they want the fights pretty even even experienced matchmakers will sometimes have an outclass match yeah and they'll, they'll call it pretty quick mm-hmm. and out here at least for the ties it's just like oh you know i was outclassed it's not a big deal but because it's if and it's a lot of international mm-hmm. fighters with different value sets what sort of is the response with
1: that it just depends on it depends on how far along into that outclassing <laughs> the referee might uh, make that call uh there i have a good example from canada so good example sorry a good example from a canadian athlete uh in belarus we had uh we had brought a girl to belarus and she competed against france in one of the like the preliminary bouts and this this girl was always uh, a self-described slow starter and you can't start slow in IFMA competition.
0: Especially, it's a three-round yeah, fight.
1: especially when it's only three rounds, right? Yeah. You only have so much time to prove to the judges that you're the better athlete. But what being a, a slow starter did was it basically made it look like uh, this Canadian athlete had nothing on France. France would be throwing combinations that would be landing, and, and sure, we'd say racking up points, but also, you know having a visible effect on the Canadian athlete. Then the Canadian athlete would throw a jab here, a low kick there, and it would kind of look like they would bounce off of France. It would like ping off of of metal armor. And so there came a point where France turned up the aggression, landed a a number of unanswered strikes in the row, and then the referee came in to provide an eight count. And that eight count is, in amateur, a safety measure. It's a safety tool
0: it is it doesn't count for much on the scorecard it doesn't count for anything on the scorecard it's like I jabbed you in the head basically yeah Yeah. the the eight count is there to
1: help the referee guide the bout to a um, decision so we don't want to have knockouts we don't want to have you know head injuries it's it's there to provide the receiving athlete a bit of a break collect themselves get back into competition so this was kind of the first hey Canadian athlete you need to step it up Mm -hmm. and so the eight count was done she beat the eight count they get back into competition and it was basically a repeat of the same they got into the clinch and I think the uh, the French girl was maybe throwing a few uh, punches or elbows to the back of the Canadian's head and that's bad well it got waved off yeah and so it was it was treated as an outclassing and this girl was really upset because she was like they never even gave me a chance mm-hmm. to get going to to find her groove to find okay. her pace and so on and you don't get that chance when there are 40 bouts per day yeah <laughs> across 10 days and so on it is you you perform right out of the gate and so that was an instance where someone was very upset that something was treated as an outclassing but then I've also had it where people have, you know, thanks. Like the coaches have said, you well, know, thank you, ref, for, for stopping mm-hmm. that match when it was clearly, clearly one-sided. So it it just it depends. It depends on what the mindset of the athlete was during during that outclassing. It depends on what was already happening or what was very obviously about to happen yep. in in the match. But it's a decision that we don't see a whole lot in North America. It's an interesting
0: cultural phenomenon, I for think. Sure.
1: But everyone everyone treats the win and the loss with such high value in North America that um, even if you're entered into you know, a large tournament, that it's, it's almost like it's devastating for, for the referee to just say, you know what, today wasn't your day, let's keep you safe, and you can compete next weekend or the weekend after.
0: Why do you think that the win or the loss is valued so much?
1: Uh, scarcity, I think. Is, is probably, like, the, the main reason I would put it put it down uh, for that is when you look at the availability of Muay Thai competition in North America versus the availability of competition elsewhere in the world. You know, we, we look at our athletes and be like, wow, you got to 25 fights? Yeah. 20, you fought 25 times? That's impressive. And you did that across five years? <laughs> um, and then you get the examples of, like, again, I'll, I'll just use France as an example, but, like, one of our girls fought someone from France in this most recent world championship where this girl from France accumulated our girl's entire experience within one year. She fought 25 times or something like that within within a year. And the availability is just there.
0: Yeah. Um, so going back a little bit, we just briefly mentioned judging. Yeah. What is the difference? And then can you sort of explain it in terms of IFMA and yeah. whatnot?
1: Um, I think the main thing with with judging is that as an amateur judge, you never get a break during an active competition. You have to be paying attention to every single strike that is being thrown and landing. Because as I mentioned earlier, everything is worth one point. So mm. if it lands, like if it was legal, forceful, and it lands, uh, it's, it's worth one point. And this is what leads a lot of bystanders to casually watch about and say, oh, looks like red won this one because red was more forceful or like when they hit, you know, blue was falling backwards and things like that. Stuff that are kind of like subjective visual cues that can that can give you an idea for, for who is dominating a match. But then when you actually look down to like strike for strike, what is happening and who is performing more, you're like, oh, actually the opponent was landing more frequently and those strikes still had force. It's not like they were just like pitter patter and taps and stuff like that. So as an amateur as an amateur judge, it's you you can't take a moment and miss any strike because that can bring it down from you know, that that can that can be your margin. That can mm. be, you know, everything for you to to split that round. I always joke that in a heavyweight match, it's both easier and harder to to judge because sure it's slower you have less to keep track of and so on they're not they're not you know striking as much but if you were to miss or not pay attention or like not see one strike that's a much larger portion of the round for 54 kilogram Uh. people that are running around and you know like um stinging each other like wasps Missing one strike probably isn't, you know, a, a significant portion of what happened in that round. They've hit each other a hundred times or something like that. But when, when it's heavyweights that have, like, thrown five punches and you miss one of those punches, you've missed 20% <laughs> of, of that round. You're like, that's, that's a serious uh, error on, I, on the judges' part.
0: I also think that people don't necessarily understand the amount of focus it takes in order to judge and really be paying attention oh, for sure to these fights. The other part is is that you can only judge what you can see. So
1: this is why, you know, there's there's three judges uh, covering three sides of the well, covering three sides of the ring. And if something happens where the opponent is in the way, the referee is in the way, the rope is in the way, the corner is in the way, if you don't see it, you as a judge can't say, "Well, I think it happened." You can only score what you are are certain you saw and this is a really cool thing about the amateur scoring system is it actually kind of reintroduces the the weighting of weapons that we normally expect in Muay Thai where knees are worth more where kicks are worth more and so on and the reason why is that they're visible they're such big strikes that they're easy to see Mm. you know when a kick lands if there's a really quick flurry of punches and you don't have like the best angle as a judge, it's a lot harder for you to score that. Unless you're seeing their head just bobble, mm-hmm. bobble backwards. But if someone's got you know a strong composure, and a f- and a number of punches are thrown, and you don't have a really good angle to see that, uh, how do you really score that? Whereas when you see a kick fly up and land, like that's a big chunk of someone's body <laughs> yeah. hitting someone else's body, it's very easy to score that. Same with a knee when you when you see a knee lined up. Well, so it kind of reintroduces that hierarchy of weapons in a different way. We mm. don't say that the kick is worth more, but if the kick is easier to score, you are going to score more kicks. Um, so that that in that way, you know, people say, oh, well, the the scoring system just encourages people to box, and so that's it, because you can land so many more punches than you can land, you know, kicks or knees in a in a short period of time, but. It doesn't actually work out that way because you know you've seen the championship and what you see is still one time
0: yeah for sure so uh, a lot of the judges and referees for the tournament are volunteers Mm -hmm. what is that sort of process like and what is it like because they are volunteers when they judge important bouts you know how does that work as sort of a system
1: It it all depends on the country, um, because every country has a different level of support and development for amateur Muay Thai. Like, when I first came, it's it's not even that the judges and referees are volunteers, the judges and referees are often paying to be here. Mm -hmm. So when I first came in, in Sweden, it was, I had to pay my own airfare, I had to pay... Uh, my hotel accommodations for the tournament pay the same tournament fees that the athlete did in order to be able to work the tournament. <laughs> um, so I was paying money to invest in my own ability to, to work. Now, I saw that as a, a worthwhile investment because I was uh, learning so much about the sport that I could then bring back to Canada and, and share with others. So it, so it really depends on, you know, is the, the judge or the referee Uh, self-funded or are they possibly funded by their own national federation. So there are national federations that do have money set aside to bring their own team judges and referees is what they're referred to so that the the individual is not paying their own fees but more the the country is. And then on top of that there are the international technical officials which are a a nominated group of top-tier Judges and referees from around the world and these ones are basically sponsored by IFMA or sponsored by the local organizing committee Where their their flights and their accommodations are are paid for Because they want to ensure that there is at least a basis like you know 20 to 25 individuals of of really high-level referees to cover the tournament, because depending on where a country's development at, is is at, a team referee that they might bring might not be up to the level of participating at the World Championship. That was when I first came, is I, you know, like I said, I, I paid out of my own pocket to come here, and I was definitely not getting into the ring in, uh, in in Sweden, because I just didn't have that level of experience under my belt. Under judging, I was totally fine to uh, to, to take that on. So. When someone is willing to self-fund their trip, it's clearly out of passion, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, if the national federation is bringing is bringing someone, there can be a number of reasons for it. Ifma does actually have a rule where it's for every six athletes that your team brings, you're supposed to bring one team referee. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, a rule um, implemented, I think, first for the European Championship because they needed a greater variety of judges and referees to represent the different countries because you couldn't just like you know with the early supporters being like France and Germany and stuff you couldn't just have all French and German referees yeah. doing every single country because then you've got Germans refereeing Germans and judging Germans and yeah. and so on and so forth so it, it creates a greater um, diversity among the countries represented among the officials and then
0: Hopefully, leads to fairer competition. Of course, with any sort of judging, there's always going to be backlash about certain (laughs) bouts. Yeah, you know whether it's a German uh, judging a German or you know anything. This year, it was Loma Luke Boonmi. I actually didn't even see the fight, but some people online were upset about it. What do you do personally? Who did did she fight? I can't even remember to be honest. I think it. You know, part of it is also Loma was the favorite right? she's been doing very well it was even when sometimes very good people lose yeah I have no idea what happened in the fight whether it was judged favorably or unfavorably for whoever but I'm just interested in as a referee and judge what do you do personally when you receive backlash or, you know, criticism about your decisions with bouts? So
1: uh, receiving that criticism on the international level is very different than on the local level. On the local level, you're usually working among people that you know personally, and that criticism can actually be a lot harder to take on the on the local level because you've got you know, a coach that you've worked with, someone that you've been friends with for for a long time, people that you've been around or in your social circle suddenly, you know, turning on you and, and saying like, that was terrible, how could you do this, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, you definitely need uh, thick skin to be a uh, a judge and referee, a referee more so because you're just that much more um, visible. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're you're the per- you're the third person in the ring with the athletes, and your actions are seen by everyone. As a judge, you are a one of three, and it tend you tend not to be singled out in in the same way, though it though it definitely can happen ultimately like at at a local level and and an international level is all the the judges and referees are a family that supports each other and so as much as you are you know a single judge and a single referee that is in the ring um you always have your head table your jury to support you in the decisions and stuff that you're making um, as well as to i want to say have your back whenever there is a situation where whether it was an error of judgment that was actually made or whether it was an error of judgment that was perceived but didn't exist and so on, is that um, all the officials work together to to uh, not, not protect each
0: other, but to but, support each other. Yeah, help each other grow.
1: Yeah, help each other grow because there are sometimes bad calls that are made and another yeah. official will in- inform you about it. There is no... There's no perfect official, just like there's yeah. no perfect fighter. And as you said, you know, uh, like Loma can be can be the favorite, but have a bad day, and and it doesn't result in performance in the ring. It's the same thing with with officials. Even the the very best ones can have a a moment that you know, as a referee, they are out of position position and didn't happen to. See a low blow that took mm-hmm. place. They saw it as landing clean, but it was actually low. And well, what do you do in that situation? You only have a split second to deal with the information that that you know you're processing. When you come to coaches and others, athletes, and so on, being upset with your decision making as an official on the international stage, it takes a, a little bit of a different turn because. Sometimes you don't even speak the language of the coach. That is, that is upset at what had happened in the ring, or at the scoring, or, or so on and so forth. But and then and then the ability to explain and communicate and come to kind of a resolution is is hindered in that regard. But there's a very good process at IFMA that you know, if a coach is upset at a the decision, then the person that they're going to be talking to is the head table, is is the jury. If it comes down to being such a you know that the coach feels so adamantly that there was an injustice done, an incorrect decision made, a, an incorrect call made, or so on, then there's there's the protest option to go with, where um, they they basically they they put down money, have the bout reviewed by an independent jury and judges and and so on in order to to make a decision about it and if it needs be overturned then it then it can be really like you know you're you're doing the best that you can as a judge or referee in in any given moment and um, if you make a mistake you you own up to it you you know you accept your mistakes and, and say that you'll be better next time and there will be times where you are absolutely perfect you you know you made every call correctly and you will still have a very unhappy coach or athlete yeah. you know speaking against you just because uh, in, in part of it you know they are advocates for themselves or for their team or for their athletes you know depending on, on who it is and whatever role that they have and you can't you know you, you, you can't fault them for that as I mentioned with the intensity at which a judge has to watch everything that happens in a, in a single bout it is very easy for a coach especially a coach that has not been trained as a judge for example to completely misinterpret what is happening in the ring at mm. any time you're going to ever so slightly see your athletes strikes land with more force yeah confirmation bias confirmation bias you're gonna see your athletes land with slightly more force you're gonna see stuff that missed possibly make a connection you're going to see uh, you're going to see a lot of what you want to see because you have a, a favorite and this is the reason why we don't allow judges and referees to judge and referee their own country yeah. because even with you know, the purest and most perfect intention there is always some little mm. subtle um, bias bias that, that can work its way in there so it's always better to, to exclude yourself from it um, and this is why you know, I sit ringside as a judge and if someone asks me if I think a decision was right or wrong, I don't have an answer. Because unless I was sitting, sitting ringside as a, like on the bench, but was judging it like I was a judge, um, I, don't, I don't have a good answer. Because yeah. there's plenty of stuff that um, you can look at the overall flow and story of a match, but not have seen all of the specifics to say, yes, red was the winner this round, blue was the winner this round, and, and so on. I, I might be able to say... Uh, a referee's call might not have been correct, but that's about yeah about it.
0: That's uh pretty interesting. I definitely feel like that, you know, commentating regularly at max and seeing all these fights. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting ringside, but I'm not paying attention in the same way that the judges and referees are paying attention. Or if you're watching a fight online, you are not seeing it the same way as someone no, that is sure. directly in the ring. Or sitting even ringside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the other things is that the referee is the closest person to the action. So if there is a call that they are making, which some people might see as being questionable, just remember, like, and usually it's in the delivery of a count. Mm-hmm. Um, just remember that the referee is the person closest to it. So while a... a Punch may have landed, and the the spectator, or even the judge, or even the coach, or whatever, might not see it as having been all that damaging or forceful a, a strike. The referee is the closest one to say, Oh, well, that athlete's eye is rolled into the back of their head momentarily, and I don't want there to be another pile of punches. <sighs> Following that one, let's give them the moment. Let's give them the eight. Yeah, character. eye so,
0: rolls are very, very difficult to see unless yeah. you're standing right uh, front uh, unless you're standing right there. You, usually, uh, one of the things I start looking at is the boxer's lateral movement. Yeah, side to side to side it's, movement. And is, their gait is yeah. a huge indicator
1: of where they are uh, consciously.
0: Because a lot of people can move forward and backwards mm-hmm. easily after being rocked, mm-hmm. but horizontally or laterally. Is a little more difficult and requires more coordination yeah absolutely. so if they're swaying even lightly or if if you look at uh, knees buckling mm-hmm. um, that is usually a sign as well where it
1: gets really tricky is uh, and this is where you know it's it's really only going to be experienced refereeing and, and you know some, some good instruction and some good examples and stuff but what gets really tricky is that as athletes get exhausted their movements change and you have to be able to differentiate the movement of an exhausted athlete versus a injured athlete or a you know um, an athlete that's not all there in their, in their head anymore as a result of having had
0: some, some concussive or, or subconcussive blows and an exhausted athlete is very likely to become, to become an, yeah, an injured much, athlete. Much more easily than being able know.
1: to become an injured athlete. Yeah. So there's a yeah, That's there's a, a lot. very fine line, it seems. So, so when the referee's duty is you know, to care for the competitors, and you know, when we talk about it on an amateur basis, at least in Canada, we have a term, we call it uh, long-term athlete development or lifetime access to sport. And while Muay Thai is a combative sport, it is a sport that we still hold to those goals. So, if you are letting your athletes in the early stages of their career continually get concussed or take excessive damage or so on and so forth, then how are you going to see you know lifetime Muay Thai practitioners that are getting up to the golden years of you know fifty, fifty-five, and so on, and maybe they're not competing anymore, but you still want them active in in that sport, training and possibly sparring or or whatnot,
0: being um, involved as referees and yeah,
1: officials themselves, being involved as coaches, referees, officials. Um, you know, following the different pathways and avenues that are available. But, uh, but ultimately it just comes down to is that, yeah, it is an amateur sport. <laughs> I want to say no one's being paid for it, but we know that at the world championship level that like there are metal bounties, people win yep. a gold, they go back to their country and they've got $50,000 and you know, uh, a new car or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, doesn't really happen in, uh, in Canada and okay. the
0: USA, but, uh, when when we look at protecting our athletes that's really the that's the goal so let's talk a little bit about the growth of IFMA mm-hmm. how has it expanded in the last few years and how has it impacted the growth of Muay Thai globally <laughs>
1: So I'm a, I'm a latecomer to IFMA, um, I really only started getting involved in 2015 and 2016, so a lot of what I know about prior to that time is just what has been uh, told to me or relayed to me. Well, um,
0: but still, I still feel like in the last few years...
1: It, in the last few years, it is still... Um, it's, it's, it's been... ...astronomic growth. Just in the number of... Just like when we talk about, you know, recognition and announcements and things like that that are that are taking place is, so, you know, Sweden holding the World Championships was was a was a first it was it had its issues, it had, you know, technical problems It had trouble finding volunteers for for the event to run a smooth championship. But, you know, it was, it was the first time running an event in, I think, what do they call it the Shenzhen area? within like the EU. But um, it was, you know, that was a milestone on its own. Then later in 2016, uh, IFMA was then provisionally recognized by the International Olympic Committee and brought into the Olympic family. You know, it had been making these strides for something like 20 years. Um, and finally it was, was designated an Olympic recognized sport. Following that, it was then in the 2017 World Games as a full um metal sports and then in 2018 for the very first time it held a world championship in the western hemisphere in cancun uh, mexico um it has just been like milestone after milestone Mm -hmm. in these in these most recent years um for ifma and all of them seem very very big ones but when i look back and and you know when i see a presentation that's being delivered by stephen fox or so on. there, there have been a lot of milestones along the way. There was Sport Accord recognition, there was the creation, um, and then membership with the alliance of independent member sports. There was uh, getting into the World Combat Games. There was like there was there was a lot along the, the way. The World
0: Combat Games are coming up in Korea as well. I am, I am
1: not entirely sure
0: on that. Oh, yeah, um, that's fine.
1: I think there was a World Combat Games that was supposed to be hosted at some point and then got canceled. And I'm not I haven't been. Uh, keeping up to date on what's happening with that. So, okay. What's what's happening in Korea this month, or the end of this month, is the World Martial Arts Masterships. Oh, okay. Maybe um, that's it. That is in Chengdu, Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous one of those took place in 2016. Um, that, that, the first one happened in 2016, and the next one is happening this year. Um, and it is a large uh, multi-sport event focused on martial arts. So whether it is combat martial arts or whether it is um, oh what's the term for like demonstrative martial arts where you're, you're you're following a kata or a flow or or something that is that is non-contact or non-combat, um, the World Martial Arts Masterships is a pretty cool event. I know uh, the USA is sending something like six athletes yeah. um,
0: over to that, so that'll be
1: uh, that'll be something cool.
0: So, what do you think is the likelihood that IFMA will get into the Olympics? And then, I guess maybe you might not be the best person to ask this. What happens if it doesn't get in? So, um, the, the next milestone for
1: IFMA. IFMA is um, provisionally recognized by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC. And the next step for it is to become a fully recognized international federation. Um, the announcement that it made uh, last week in unifying... Um, IFMA and the World Muay Thai Council into one organization is a step towards that. It brings now professional and non-professional Muay Thai under one association worldwide. Um, and that was something that was kind of, um, I don't know what to say, hinted at, but you know, brought up as a uh, point to address by the IOC. So they've addressed that. Um, getting this full recognition, um, this world championship was... Um, Basically, audited by the I.O.C., they had uh, one of their uh, their members here observing the entire championship, and they are now going to make recommendations as to whether Ifma should be fully recognized. Once Ifma is fully recognized by the I.O.C., um, I believe it means they actually get a little bit more money, a little bit mm-hmm. more funding from the I.O.C., um, but then they can be selected. Um, to participate in uh, the summer games is what they're pushing for but you know it could be a winter game sport it's
0: indoors um, <laughs> well, but uh, out here it was outdoors out, out here it was, I, it was outdoors yeah. I think some people might have wanted it to be in some AC air, air
1: conditioning would have been would have been helpful for some of the countries that are coming from a little bit colder climates but um, yeah so when it when it becomes fully recognized it can then be selected for the Olympics um every olympic games there is the host country is now allowed to basically invite um five additional sports that are beyond the standard olympic roster um usually these are going to be well um, almost certainly these are going to be sports that the host country excels at yeah right they want they're going to pick sports that will bring medals to the host country so when we look at tokyo um being in Japan, one of the sports is karate. So, mm-hmm. karate is not uh, normally a sport on the full Olympic roster, but for Tokyo 2020, karate is in. Uh, I believe sport climbing is also in. Softball is also in. Something with. Wait, raving.
0: in Tokyo, it's
1: sport climbing? There's sport climbing in, in Tokyo. Are they good at sport climbing? I have no idea. Okay. But, well, I get the point. B- between karate, sport climbing, softball, I think there was some kind of like river rafting or kayaking or something like that in there um you're basically looking like they created ninja warrior on the (laughs) the 2020 (laughs) olympics um i forget what the fifth sport is as well but um those five invitational sports are announced like a month before the olympics takes place wow so So that's
0: pretty short well sorry
1: before the next olympics is oh okay so like just before rio 2016 Mm-hmm. The five invitational sports for 2020 okay. were, were made known. So
0: you got four years to get real good at sport yes. climbing or <laughs> yeah, adventure basically. rafting or whatever. For sure.
1: Adventure rafting. I like that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably what it is, too. Um, so if we look at Paris 2024, then the five invitational sports would be announced just before Tokyo 2020.
0: Okay. So um, we're looking at 2024. Fingers crossed. I don't think it's going to happen. You don't think it's <laughs> no. going to happen,
1: and the and the reason for it is that um, even even as as late as last year, IFMA's stated objective was instead to focus on the uh, Youth Olympics that were taking place in 2023 in mm-hmm. Africa. Um, I think even the date of that changed, and now it's the announced tw- 2022. Um, but the other part of it is that for France to invite five additional sports. There are almost certainly five other sports that Paris is better at getting or like France is better at getting medals mm-hmm. than Muay Thai.
0: I mean the French Muay Thai team is very good though. It, it is incredibly strong. Uh, you know, Jimmy Veneau was voted, you know, best athlete of the year. Yep. Yeah. Jimmy Veneau for people that are unfamiliar also has a Lumpini belt, mm-hmm. um, and has done quite well at the stadiums out here. Uh, I actually interviewed him and I'll do a little video shortly, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think the Olympics is, it's interesting because that's something the United States is really pushing for. Absolutely. But even if it does get into the Olympics, I don't want to be too ba- much of an, uh, negative nancy or you know devil's advocate but even if it does get into the olympics there's other sports like curling mm-hmm. adventure kayaking <laughs> you know i uh, like i'm not sure that the best adventure kayaker is going to be on the cover of a Wheaties rose right. cereal box so does Olympic recognition really change the sport that much? And is it a goal worth striving for? Well, I can say that Olympic
1: recognition basically means everything for amateur sport in Canada. Um, the Canadian government, Sport Canada, the Canadian Olympic Committee, like no one will care about um, a amateur sport unless it is a medal sport in, in the Olympics. Um, for Canada, that actually creates some really unique um, issues. Because by default in Canada, all combat sport um, on an amateur basis uh, and and professional basis is illegal. So um, the only time professional combat sport is legal is when your professional athletic commission says, okay, we are going to sanction this competition. Um, And the only time that amateur sport is illegal is in, or is legal, is in two situations. One, there's a government recognized, like sport organization responsible for running that sport which is uh, where where i work in ontario or it's an olympic sport Mm -hmm. if it is a sport on the olympic program it's like flicking a switch and suddenly competition in that sport is now legal across the entire country of canada whereas right now it is illegal in a majority of the provinces Mm -hmm. people have to travel outside of their home province in order to find competition they come to the states they come to ontario or alberta or or so on and it's really been a it's a huge developmental issue to be even able to push um athletes into the high performance stream um sarah carter for example who's our gold medalist from this most recent world championship um she in order to just keep active had to Uh, cross train in boxing in order to Mm -hmm. just just to keep some kind of combat sport activity she would fly down to iowa to compete in tba she had um we we brought her to pan am in buenos aires and so on where she she got a gold medal there as well Um, but in her like downtime in her not downtime but in in her in (laughs) most of her time in her home province is she's had to cross train boxing, which you know carries along its own complications. Mm. And boxing has particular rules about being able to move from one combat sport to another, and so on.
0: So, I guess wrapping things up. Obviously, you've been doing a lot of stuff for Muay Thai, uh, Ontario. What are some of the new projects, or what are you going back to Canada with? Um, well, the the main thing that's happening
1: in Ontario right now is that the government has completely um, overturned its combat sports laws and is now looking to um, it's 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 uh, taking consultation on new regulations and rules and stuff to put in place that's exciting which, Maybe. Is, which is a big opportunity as well as a big unknown so it does mean that the door is open to professional Muay Thai coming to Ontario for the first time ever Um, but it also means it could completely uh change the the combat sports system or the combat sports landscape depending on what politicians and experts and other stuff uh, advise so it's something that we're going to be um heavily involved in and trying to you know lobby for and you know in considering the world muay thai council and merging with ifma and the olympic pathway um for muay thai and so on um across canada um, we're starting to see other provinces um, organize under this that provincial sport organization structure in order to bring uh, Muay Thai development and competition um, to those provinces. So, uh, again, Sarah Carter is um, is working with a lot of the clubs that are in Manitoba in order to build up a, a Muay Thai Manitoba. Um, there's a long-standing group that has been working in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, Quebec was one of the places where Ontario athletes used to go to compete. We had no Muay Thai in Ontario, and we had have to come to, you know, across the border uh, in, in Rochester or Seneca or um, head over to Quebec. And then Quebec was entirely shut down yeah, um, by, by the law, by local law enforcement. So now they're starting to uh, build up some momentum with their own... Um, provincial governments and and reapply and rebuild this this recognition that they previously had um so there's yeah there's there's a lot happening all across canada in order to um establish muay thai under this um you know dream of of olympism um and ifma's uh ifma's merger with the wmc is just this huge um well-timed Opportunity, And it seems like that's been happening a lot in Muay Thai, like um, Muay Thai Ontario was recognized by its provincial government um, right around the same time that IFMA was recognized mm-hmm. by the IOC, right around the same time that, you know, it was getting into the World Games, like there was a lot all happening at the same same time from local to international level
0: yeah hopefully we're we're seeing a bit of a cultural shift with things yeah for sure
1: um and and now like you know canada has been working a lot more closely with um the united states with uh, with even mexico with even you know countries in south america as well because we've all basically recognized that we are very behind on the developmental Mm -hmm. curve for producing high performance athletes um able to compete on the world stage so um at at best it's really all it's in everyone's best interest to work together across, you know, these international borders to build up, um, the Pan American region, the North American region, um, until, you know, we all get to that level where we're like, okay, we've made it. Now we we can start beating each other up again.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully we will be beating each other up in the future. Uh, thank you so much Reed for taking your time out and talking to me. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I thought it was really interesting, especially points about scoring, which is obviously a big deal, especially when you're fighting at IFMA. Scoring at IFMA is not the same as scoring at the stadiums. It's not the same as scoring at in America, which doesn't really have a standard. And it's not the same as scoring at a lot of the entertainment shows. I think it's very important for athletes to understand how scoring works in order to understand how to win. Uh, The other, I think, very important takeaways from that were some of the things he said about contested decisions and how referees and judges deal with them, especially in a sport like Muay Thai, where a lot of people's work is intrinsic. There isn't a lot of money in the sport yet. The sport is definitely growing But a lot of it has to do with people's passion. So sometimes that when there is a contested decision, that passion can hurt even more because people are paying out pocket to come to these things. It's expensive. And then some judge says, no, you lost for X, Y, and Z, or doesn't even say X, Y, and Z. I think it's important to understand both sides of the decision, both the team that has the contention, and also the judge and referee, just so you can really understand the landscape better. In our pick a fight last week, uh, or two weeks ago, when we had the show with Desiree Brandt, we talked about the Ratang sex Seksan fight. Uh, so that went Ratang's way. So. I picked up another win in my prediction book with that one. Actually, when the fight was over, Saxon got on Facebook and complained about the judge's decision. Um, A lot of it has to do with weight as well. Saxon came down in weight to face ra which was pretty interesting. So when you have very high-level fighters or they think... That it will be very close. so give maybe a pound. A uh, half a pound advantage. To one fighter or the other. Just to even things up. And a lot of times. To make the betting more interesting. So in this last fight. Saxon was supposed to come down. He actually met Ratong at his weight. So we'll see what happens in the future. I think I saw rumors of. The non Camp negotiating with. Orquan Muang, um, again, for a future buy- bout, this one will be held at Raja Demnerm, so it will be very interesting to see what happens with that. Of course, Ratang still has a lot of momentum in his career right now. The win over Haggerty and now the win, maybe slightly contested, against Saxon. If you watch the fight... Ratong was very slow. Um, I think he might have been banged up from the Haggerty fight. You know, he's fighting very often, which can really wear on the body and also the morale as well. Saxon was in full charge. Uh, Both fighters showed a lot of respect to each other, which I think was really great. So a couple other notes before we close things out. I started, I did a... Uh, video series. Um, I've covered a couple of people Jimmy Vino, Chris Shaw, and recently Ogden Topic. It was called Behind the Fight. It was just a fun little project. I might continue on with it. I'm not really sure. Um, it takes a lot of time to do video work, but it was also really interesting for me. So we'll see if I continue to do that. Um, I think I'm going to focus on some other projects right now. Uh, I. Will be doing an ebook, which I hope to release in the next few months. Uh, it's basically going to be a how-to guide for on-fighting in Thailand. So going over everything, visas, how to pick a gym, also when you're at the fight, career management, and interviews with long-term fighters out here. If there are things that you want to know about fighting here in Thailand and having a career, definitely reach out to me. Um, I want. To write this book for you. Uh, The last bit is that I will be putting on the previous episodes that were on the Patreon uh, and I will make them publicly available. Hopefully I should get it time to do that this week. Um, So I think there's two or three that were behind the paywall so those will be free. And then we'll see what happens with everything. I might, I'll probably still have the Patreon up and we'll be plugging it. I might do shout outs or some other monetary scheme. I haven't really thought that much about it. If you have uh, suggestions, definitely let me know. Um, so, thank you so much for listening to On Fighting in Thailand. This has been episode nine as part of our series on IFMA. This is the third IFMA episode. Uh, so if you'd like, if you like the episode, definitely leave a review, share it, send me a comment. Um, you can reach out to me via email a period Matt period Lucas at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram Matt Lucas BKK. So This has been On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people.